You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma. Mike Hearn here, your host, back with another episode. Exciting news. This podcast is presented by the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, who have been telling Oklahoma's story through its people since 1927. Follow them online at oklahomahof.com and then definitely follow them on Instagram for all the information that you need because I'm sure that's where you follow us as well, at oklahomahof. Let's get into today's episode. Down at, I guess, the center and operations and offices of Water 4 with the president CEO, Matt Hanging. I really appreciate your time. I know we've met before, and the first time that I I was aware of you and what you do was at uh, Petra Kucha, so you speak, which seems like a really, like, uh, I don't know what the word would be, but it's like quite, uh, I mean, you're under pressure when you do those Petra Kucha things, right? Because it's like, what, 12, is it 20 slides? 20 slides, like, it has to be two minutes or so many seconds each, yeah, 20 seconds each that's or something. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which, I mean, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, uh, but that, yeah, that's when I kind of saw you and saw what you do. And, and I kind of had a little bit of awareness about waterfall, just kind of knowing in the area of, you know, what you guys do. But, um, for people who don't know you or don't know with, you know, what waterfall is, you know, what, what is it? What do you do? Yeah. Um, we're trying to eradicate the world's water crisis. Okay. That's the like big hairy goal we've got. Uh, and we're doing that through starting local businesses in Africa and in South America uh, that can actually like solve their own water crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, we equip them with technology and then give them business models where they can actually provide water to people mm-hmm. at an affordable cost for folks owning or earning you know a dollar two dollars a day. Yeah. So we sort of make that the box that we work within. You know, what's affordable? What's sustainable? Mm-hmm. And what can we do so local people can be the heroes? Um, and, yeah, and, and not us. And obviously, pre- predominantly, that's in Africa. Yeah, most of our work's in Africa. Yeah, I work in fifteen countries, fourteen of which are in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, drilling wells and teaching them how to do that stuff as well. Yeah, we started out like de- designing our own drilling equipment and pumps, and that's kind of how we got into it. Was on the technology side. Okay. And then you know, as we got the technology to people, we realized you know there's a lot more like mentoring and coaching, mm-hmm. and, and um, you know, we I think like a lot of people thought the problem was like the pump or the tech, you know. Sure. Um, and so we'd go to places that people wouldn't have water, and we thought, oh, let's just drill a well, and they'll have a well, and then they'll have water. And then, like, a year later, the pump would be broken, and they'd be drinking out of the same stream. Again. Yeah. And so, like, talking to people and asking those hard questions, we realized that it was a lot more that there wasn't, like, something there locally to, like, maintain, repair, mm. and, you know, keep all of those water systems working forever. and that's what we've been really passionate about yeah it's a huge issue yeah and it's i mean of of the the most simple of things right and there's billions of dollars of broken pumps out there Mm. and it's like just from a like stewardship mentality you know we're just gonna keep putting more and more of these things are gonna break down yeah It, it it not only is depressing for you when you're living in a village and you got hope and then it fell away and got yeah. disappeared but also i mean like are we just going to keep throwing our money to the wind? Um, or are we actually going to, you know, dig in and, mm. and try to make something that'll last? Yeah. Because I, I assume like, you know, a lot of people see charities and see people who donate money as like, Oh, it's a tax write off. They don't really, they, you know, they're just sending money. Right. 
And that's like the bad side of what, that's the bad, you know what I mean? Like that's like the bad thing, like the bad view of charity, I guess, right? And that's why you said there's so many pumps over there, but you guys are actually on the ground fixing the issues. Yeah, fixing the the, issue behind the issues. Yeah. Yeah. And I think most people just have good intentions, you know, and it's like, it's sort of like you drive by and you see someone that, you know, is, is living on the streets or sleeping on the streets and you think like, you know, your first instinct is to like pull out a 20 and give Mm -hmm. it to them. And like in the moment, like if that person needs food, that is still like a kind, compassionate act to do. Yeah. But we're asking that question, like why are why is this happening? Why why is this yeah. continuing to happen? And how can we, you know, actually ensure that, you know, they're not on the street tomorrow or two months from now. And sure. So it's taking that approach to to water development to say, what if we could create a business? What if we looked at what people could afford? And even though people are materially impoverished, they can still afford three cents a day. Yeah, and so let's design a water system that can be sustained with three cents a day, and make that our job to figure out how to put the tech in place to do it. Yeah, rather than just assume you're poor and you can't do anything for yourself. Right, which nobody wants to have that assumption made of about. Course. No matter, yeah, no matter what you are. So, uh, I mean, how how do you get to like this position of being president CEO of a company <laughs> that you know that like you know, and we just speaking before we started recording like. If this wasn't a you know pandemic year, you would be on the road a lot. Oh yeah, totally. You know, you're in the air a lot. <clears throat> yeah, you know, the 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 short story is that you know my board chair told me some people uh, grow into greatness and some people are thrust into greatness. And so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, I I grew up as a, a farm boy from rural Alabama. Uh, my house until I was six or seven. You know, we didn't have cabinets in our house. We had plywood floors. My parents worked really hard uh, to sort of. Uh, start from scratch and yeah. um, uh, get us the opportunities that I got got to have as a kid. So I, I never grew up thinking I'd be a CEO. It was always kind of a dirty word. Uh, you know, you thought about these guys in suits and private jets. And, uh, you know, I I was really proudly a Carhartt guy. Uh, you know, like I told you earlier, I was 317 pounds of yeah. cornbread, Alabama goodness. Um and uh, my story in Africa, which you know I'll share today, um, kind of allowed me to lead and learn from the people we are serving with, mm-hmm. and build Waterfor's like model of doing our work, and understanding that sustainability side, understanding the people we serve, um, and having some management background, uh, yeah. and a really good board of directors. I got the chance to go from sort of the field guy who was always gone in Africa and always building tools and welding, you know, yeah. off car batteries and doing that, uh, being the chief operations officer and then eventually the president and CEO. Yeah. So I've been water for, for almost 10 years and I feel like I've you know, grown up here in a lot of ways. Right. So growing up in Alabama and, and, you know, like, did you know that like you had a pretty rough upbringing or was it just like, no, this is all we have. This is kind of just like, we, that's just what you knew. Yeah, it's, it is, you know, you never know what you're in when you're in it. Yeah. You know, and, um, I, um, uh, yeah, eventually, um, you know, I got kicked out of public school when I was in seventh grade, wasn't allowed to go back and yeah. got put in a private school uh, in Mobile, Alabama. It's a Christian school and it was like the first time I'd been around, um, like what I would consider like normal Christian families now. Sure. You know, and so... You know, we weren't playing with guns that their dads had or, you know, dragging <laughs> yeah. boxes of dirty magazines out that they had in their closets. And, you know, like my like neighborhood, you know, that I grew up in was a lot like 
you know, what you'd find in rural yeah. America with mobile homes and, you know, lack of appreciation for education and diversity. And, um, and so I think it was when I got in that private school, I was treated differently. Mm-hmm. Like there was a pretty dramatic difference in the way that I was treated. Um, and I hate to ask this, but I can get that welding and grinding oh, and stuff. Right. We'll It'll be okay. okay. Yeah, it's We're at Water 4. We're, we're building yeah. tools for Africa. Yeah. Forgive the background. That's, a, that's uh, all good. But, um, yeah, I think when I got in that environment and all of a sudden, like, people were, like, kind in that different way. Like, mm-hmm. asked about me, like, affirmed me, took interest in me. And I had this eighth grade teacher uh, in a Bible class that, like, asked me how I was doing and that sort of stuff. And I think that was a big shift for me as a yeah. kid. And my senior year, I actually had a pretty uh, you know, like dramatic encounter with God. And I wasn't, we didn't grow up going to church. We went on Easter. It was weird. You know, I typically wear all one color blue jeans, mm-hmm. you know, and a neon yeah. hat. And I like, didn't know what to do. And, um, and, you know, I had this spiritual moment where, you know, I, I, I literally heard God say, you don't have to hurt or hurt others anymore. Mm-hmm. And coming from the background I had, uh, which involved abuse and like bullies and bad teachers and um, stuff, that was a dramatic counter narrative to my life as a 17 year old. Yeah. Um, that, uh, that put me on a path that I'm on today. Yeah. And, been pretty beautiful since it then. could have continued i mean it could have gone one of two ways right? i could have sort of continued to spiral and yeah. been really bad and it could have gone you know you could be could not even be here today yeah absolutely you know? I, you know the the things that happened later in my life if those would have happened without the framework of faith and without the community of faith and without mm. these other things um yeah, my life could yeah. be. How, you know, you said you got kicked out of school. How did you get into a private Christian school then? Like, where's the, there must have been a shining light or an opportunity yeah. that someone said. So my mom's father passes away and leaves an inheritance for my family who is not well-to-do. Yeah. Right as I'm getting kicked out of public school and my parents have to use all of that to basically put aside to pay for my yeah. and my sister's private school education. Um. So that's how it worked out. You know, to yeah. me, it worked out really good because sure. I had good teachers and a good learning environment and, um, you know, good friends, families and all that. But it must have been terrible for my oh, parents yeah. who had finally gotten this opportunity to, you know, buy a boat or something and, <laughs> and then have to like shove it aside for me. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, yeah, pretty divine timing. And I, I was like... Uh, you know, 200 pound sixth grader, you know, and so when I, I was always big, head and shoulders bigger, you know, taller yeah. than everyone, this big kid and emotional, and um, and so I just kept getting into fights at school because I was a big target. Sure. And um, uh, eventually, the seventh time I got suspended in seventh grade, uh, the school board uh, said you can't go back. And yeah. just to think about um, if that inheritance hadn't been there and if that school hadn't been present and all right, that you might have not even gone back to school anyway could have been a high school dropout you know junior high dropout and you know, yeah. be, be working at a garage you know rebuilding engines right now yeah which is nothing wrong with that but you know but, yeah i mean you could be a complete like you said completely a completely different, different path yeah yeah what, what were you passionate about growing up then yeah i was uh i was passionate about comic books 
space. Okay. Um, uh, mechanical stuff, I, you know, airplanes as a kid. Um, and then I had 2,000 acres of state land that was around our house. We were on Route 1, Lot 1, Evans Road. You had to go into Mississippi and back into Alabama. School bus wouldn't go there. The ambulance wouldn't go there. <laughs> like, it was literally in the middle of this white sand road in this, you know, looks like Congo, uh, you know, type environment. Swamps, like bog. That's awesome. If you've never fallen into a bog, you've never quite lived. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it was this big, swampy, snake-infested place, and I would take off my shoes and go off into this 2,000 acre wood as a kid with my machete and duct taped handle. I had a blast. And, and just have a blast. Yeah. And, uh, dug out swim holes and lived out, you know, all the little dollar classic literature books that the lady at the drugstore would give me when we'd go in. And uh, just always liked adventure, uh, had a world map wallpaper in my room, loved travel. Yeah. And it was weird to have the interest I had in the environment I had, mm -hmm. um, you know, cause it wasn't the same interest of, you know, the, my neighbors and neighborhood right. kids around me. Um, yeah. So, so you go to, you know, you get into this, this private school, you and your sister get in and, you know, your life kind of really takes a turn and, and you just kind of start seeing, I guess, seeing life a little differently, seeing a lot more opportunity, and probably getting a lot more self-confidence. Yeah. Do you go to college from there, and is that kind of? Yeah. So I'm on a by my senior year, I'm on a track I'm at the University of South Alabama. Mm -hmm. Pre pre-enrolled as a mechanical engineer. I've got scholarship to Spring Hill and Auburn University in Alabama as a mechanical engineer. And then this whole God thing happens to me, and uh, I tell my parents, "Hey, I'm not going to be an engineer. Uh, I'm so passionate about this change that I've experienced in my life." I think I want to, you know, be a youth minister because mm -hmm. there's the youth minister at the school would take an interest in me, and so you can imagine how that went. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're waiting on their yeah. uh, they're waiting they're on their like, investment to come back to them. Aren't oh they? yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> so you're going to go beg for money your whole life and you know and be <laughs> yeah. perpetually poor. Uh, and so that was a rough time in my yeah. house, you know. Uh, but like the uh, you know my mom, I got to see her in the, the change that happened to me, she got to experience some of that change and come to faith and sure. uh, my dad now too. And, um, but uh, the closest college that had a Bible track that was affiliated with the denomination of the school, which is Church of Christ, was a school called Faulkner University in Montgomery, Alabama. And I wrote to them and said, you know, here's my ACT score. You know, I got a 30 on the ACT. You know, I've got, you know, 4.0 GPA. Um, had these scholarships, would you guys consider giving me a scholarship for a Bible track? And I just wrote like a two-pager on the fact I'd been kicked out of school, had this yeah. you know, big uh, conversion moment with God. And uh, the leadership of that school gave me the equivalent percentage scholarship to come be a Bible major at this yeah. Christian school, which is another like miraculous turning point for me. Right. Uh, and so the Spring Hill University had given me the option to go as like a Jesuit training and, and uh, you know, the which would have been amazing now. I'd have been like, you know, great. Yeah. But at the time they were like, why don't you go to this, you know, Protestant school and uh, we'll, we'll take care of you. And so it, it was it was great. And the same thing with that school. I had great teachers who took mm -hmm. interest in me. And, you know, I've, I've, I've had, you know, these half dozen sort of parents uh, in my life. Yeah. And, um, 
sort of pointed me toward the new normal uh, that yeah that can attribute a lot of my current like emotional maturity to mm-hmm. during this whole time you still like itching the scratch to just have that passion of mechanical engineering and uh, like boats and just being a just being a guy in general yeah well i mean i had my like gt mustang and you know yeah. I, I went down the whole fast and furious lane and had my souped up honda that i put a turbo on and you know <laughs> all I, the lights I, and everything. yeah the yeah. under lights and hat on backwards and uh I, i've always been you know i always had side hustles i was you know working multiple jobs and you know managing mm-hmm. a car dealership and um doing landscaping and, and stuff while I did ministry as a profession too. Yeah. And, um, and the, it was tough. I, you know, I, as I got mentored and had these sort of theological, uh, theological, yeah, theological role models in my life, I thought I need to get a PhD and I need to teach. And this is, this is who sure. I'll become in life. And, uh, uh, after my first missions experience, you know, I got down and all of a sudden I was framing houses and, pouring concrete and you know sleeping in the same hut as a working work crew and mm-hmm. um you know hanging out splitting firewood that's when i think the first sort of connection of where i came from and where i was going sure really meshed um and this it was in honduras in my sophomore year of college and you know um the worker crew would come to like the devotionals in the church and we would I'd speak broken Spanish and you know we'd laugh and cut up and um, at the end of it the missionary that was there said hey just so you know those guys never come to anything like they've got they've like they come tolerate these groups that come they never come to any of our services their wives do what they don't and it's amazing that these guys came yeah to services and hung out with you, you've got something really special between you and these like blue collar um, relationships that are here. And I, you know, it's like first time I was like, well, of course I do. I've grew up working in machine shops since I was 13. Yeah. You know, my family, we does, yeah, we speak the same yeah. language and have the same, you know, heart. And, uh, you know, I'm awkward and clumsy, but I know how to swing a hammer and, uh, yeah. you know, and, and work with my hands. And so I came back from that and asked if I'd go to Africa that same summer and went to Kenya and did the same thing. Instead of staying with a group, I stayed in the homes of the people mm-hmm. that we were serving. And then we tore down this big like dormitory and, and busted the foundation up and rebuilt it. And I just stayed and did my best to love yeah. and communicate with the people that were uh, there at this center and taught some of the church leaders and stuff. But the like sweat equity and that mm-hmm. language of sweat so connected with people in a in like a labor work context. Yeah. Um, that when I would start to speak about faith and theology, there was this other language that they could connect to. Yeah. Because I grew up hoeing watermelon fields in South Alabama, you know, and once when you work with the dirt, you work with you know right. work with dirt, you, work with soil. Respect. Yeah. yeah. And so we'd, I'd go out and get leeches on my ankles in the rice fields with people, you know, yeah. and all that stuff was sort of second nature to me from where I'd grown up and living right. in swamps and swinging machetes and. Uh, working on tractors and yeah so that was the sort of the first mesh of this you know upbringing and natural mm-hmm. passions that I had and um, this uh, passion for you know ministry to me has just been saying thank you because yeah. I was in an immense amount of emotional pain before I encountered God and, and Jesus mm-hmm. and I felt like a lead jacket of you know despair had been lifted off of me and so I've spent the last 20 years trying to 
say thanks. Sure, give back. Um, and give back. So um, we uh, went to, eventually, my wife and I got engaged in Kenya on a second trip where after I stayed in refugee camps for th three months, distributing food and blankets for the LRA crisis, Invisible uh -huh. Children had come out. A lot of people remember Joseph Coney and, and that. And I found out about that on my first trip and raised seven or $8,000 on our school campus. Everybody came together. We had uh, Dave Barnes and Gavin McGraw come on campus when they were yeah. just brand new at their you know, little college. And uh, I tried to give the money to Invisible Children, this other nonprofit that that worked in northern Uganda and DRC, and they told me if you raise eight thousand dollars, you need to go, man. Like you need to, yeah. Like go do something. Go this is incredible. It. Yeah. So I went to some of the churches that had supported us, and I asked, and they sent me. And mm -hmm. so I went there and visited with some local missionaries, and then they sent me on buses to like the northern part of the country, and I'd buy these huge bags of beans and blankets, rent these trucks, go up with like rebels and machine gun fire, and, yeah. and then try to figure out how to distribute aid to refugees. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I'm 20, you know, 21, lost 35 pounds, you know, uh, I'd sleep on the top of bags of corn going down yeah. dirt roads in Africa and, and just, you know, completely fell in love with everything. And up right. to that point, I was sort of back on the American dream. You know, I had my sports car, I had my Abercrombie clothes, I had my like, you know, gym membership. Yeah. And uh, while I'm there in Africa, it was like, this is what you are meant for. Like the hardship you endured as a kid, like yeah. your strength, like all your gifts, like this is what it's about. And uh, uh, just sleeping out there in the, in the sun, in the heat, of northern Uganda, I, I like yeah. fell in love with Africa and fell in love with her people, and you know it was, you know, I had people, you know, like Museveni, the president at that time, had, was sending helicopter gunships up and just mowing everyone down because you couldn't tell rebel from yeah. normal person, and people had had their limbs removed with machetes and. Um, their HIV had been spread through these camps. And so just sitting with people and having them share these stories with me and just listening yeah. and saying, people care about you that you've never met. This is why I'm here. They sent me to help share. And um, it was really transformative for me. So I came back, sold my Mustang, bought a two-door Saturn yeah. uh, and uh, started wearing thrift store clothes. And, and my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, you know, basically had this new man you yeah. know, who'd come who'd come back and um we were went to kenya together i proposed to her there she said yes and said we're moving to africa aren't we <laughs> and i was like yes can yes, we please, can we please? <laughs> and, uh, yeah so uh i finished a graduate degree in missiology new testament theology which is like study of missions and mm -hmm. culture and, and how to teach in different cultures and uh, it's about worldview all this really great learning which helped unpack my americanism so sure. that when I would go work in Africa, I could, I could, to the best of my ability, sort of lay my Western American heritage down, um, understand and appreciate their, mm -hmm. you know, worldview from their cultures and languages, and then try to approach our beliefs as neutrally as possible. Right. So that we could get in and weigh into, weigh into the things in Scripture and leave as much as my, you know, baggage behind. And yeah allow them to really get into it themselves and develop their own songs and rhythms of faith that uh, are within the bounds of scripture but may feel different sure. to us here. It's yeah. like 
that uh, one of the things I always tell people is the word for uh, communion in their language was bean cake and beer. And so I was like, Perfect. Bean cake and beer it is. You know? <laughs> and so we'd have communion with bean cakes and beers, at, you know, like local yeah. millet beer that they would make and these bean cakes. And uh, I wasn't going to import grape juice from America, right. you know, and, and for, for us to have communion yeah. three hours away from the nearest paved road. And, um, so that was really, that was really great. Um, so we got there in 2008 to Africa and Togo, this little French country. And uh, we sold everything we owned. We used all of our, you know, all my savings from selling our cars and stuff to put our, ourselves in French language school uh, in this little town called Albreville in the Savoie, France, which is great unless you don't have any money. Uh, <laughs> so we, we bought like used bicycles and, you know, uh, uh, hitched rides on trains as much as we could and, and you know, kind of got to live in this beautiful place for, for six months to learn the French, the language of Togo. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And then moved seven hours from the capital up in the northern part of the country in one of the like hottest, most remote places in West Africa. And, um, our job was to take existing churches and try to help the leaders there figure out how to be self-sustaining. Mm-hmm. And so that was my passion for ministry, like it is with water, was how can we equip you to do this without needing missionaries, yeah. you know, without needing Western aid? How can, you know... I help you identify the resources you already have without mm-hmm. having to bring them in from the outside. Uh, within three months of getting there, I'd had malaria. Uh, I had, it had crossed into my lungs. I was hospitalized, coughing up blood. They were trying to send me home. Um, and, you know, just quickly realized that I was in a whole new environment. Yeah, I get it, got, it got real. That, it that got time, real, it? real yeah. fast. and. You know, when you cough up blood at, you know, 27 years old yeah. and you're in a hospital in Africa breathing out of a moldy respirator with a mason jar connected to your IV, you know, it's, it starts looking a lot like MASH, yeah. uh, you know, field hospital. And um, there's a doctor there that let me stay and didn't evacuate me. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that was sort of my first taste that this may be harder than anything I'd even experienced growing up, yeah. you know, and doing the things I had in life. And I drank creek water my whole life. <clears throat> so when we were out in villages, I'd drink well water yeah. from their wells and eat food like they ate. And, um, I mean, I was perpetually sick and, you know, it was hard for me to sort of admit that I couldn't get used to it. Yeah. And I thought the only reason they are alive is their bodies got used to it. Yeah. And I was raised, my granddad always told me, if anybody can do it, you can do it. Yeah. You know, and so there's this sort of like, even to the biological level, if I just will myself. Yeah, my body will get over My this. body will get over this and get used to it. And uh, it never happened. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah. we uh, we stayed in a village called Lhasa Cho. There was a husband and wife there that were pastoring a church and we were trying to help just understand their problems and mentor them. and. They, uh, they couldn't have children. And when you can't have children, in their context, the wife is literally seen as a child and doesn't have any value. And so if you think about like why you have kids in an agrarian society, it's so yeah. you have workforce, labor to go and expand and work your field. And children are a source of social status. And, um, and wow. so she, she, they couldn't have kids. 
and there was all this pressure for them to divorce, for him to like find a new wife or have children through other means, through yeah. other women. And, and so they were getting real with us. And my wife and I would go stay in a tent for three weeks at a time in these villages. And, and, and so they were sharing with us her story. And we we're like, well, there's a lot of other options other than divorce and right. hook up with somebody. And have, Who else have, is yeah. the next 10 or whatever, yeah. Um, and so uh, they had extended family that had uh, lost parents that had children that mm-hmm. were being raised by grandparents in a really rough and impoverished environment. Kids weren't able to go to school. So we connected them with a child sponsorship organization called Christian Relief Fund and, and went and helped uh, Jean-Marie and Christiane uh, adopt a brother and sister named uh, uh, Deanne and uh, Olivier. Um, they were there. They started doing their schoolwork on the side of the hut using you know chalk to do their math and like we'd go out and they'd play in our tent and life just seemed great and so we were we were really just sort of on top of the world yeah. you know, thinking we're here we're getting to meet these wonderful people and get into community and life together and um two and a half months three months after they got adopted john called me at night which wasn't uncommon like we just check in and so I've got my Nokia brick phone. Oh, yeah. That gummy number pad I can oh, still yeah. feel. And, uh, and we're, we're like, he's in a complete panic, you know, and says, man, Olivier's sick. Olivier's sick, Olivier's sick. He's, he's like not moving. Right. So I said, I'll be right there. Where they're at, there's like a tiny medical clinic that, mm-hmm. you know, this round building was, you know, tin roof and, it's closed, and so we jump in my truck, like race to their village, and get there. And Olivier is stiff as a board; he can't open his mouth. Lay him in the back seat of the truck. John's holding his head, like tear to this hospital, get there. And then for the rest of the night, we spent we're running up and down the stairs of this hospital. Uh, if, the, if you need an antibiotic, you run down to the pharmacy and the antibiotic, you buy the antibiotic, you run it back up, you give it to the doctor, you have to find the nurse, wow. then the nurse prescribes the medicine. So if you need uh, an IV, you have to go buy the IV and the IV tubes and then run it back up, give it to... So nothing is like... It's all prepayment. Yeah. So the hospital doesn't get stuck with a bill for people that don't have addresses sure. or yeah. or money. There's no like subsidies at all. So we're doing that up and down the stairs, you know, three in the morning, we're running up and down, getting stuff and they're treating him and we're like kept out of the room there's this little 12 by 12 plexiglass window on this plywood door and we're watching people going in and out we have to get a respirator we run down there's you know one of these yeah. manual respirator units in the whole hospital and get it run back up give it to the doctors we're looking through the window and we see the nurse look at her watch put her hand on his chest and then expel the last breath out of this nine-year-old boy's lungs And like that, that's the moment where like everything that had felt like it was building, yeah. you know, for 10 years of being a, a believer when life was making sense again, like everything dissolved and can just remember there were grace, like feeling the world fall from underneath us and then immediately feeling all of this weight of guilt and remorse and do-gooderism and, mm-hmm. you know, it's like... Um, like how are we? Like, what? What happened? What? Where did? You know, are we? You're responsible for this. And right. John Marie and Christiane are there. They're deeply like. You think about their lives, you know. So we're feeling this. 
they just had their first children after mm. all these years of trying to have kids. And finally, it looks like it's all going to work out. And then, you know, this son that they had just began to love you know, uh, and, and have as their own passes away. Um, and John Marie and Christiane look to us and say, it's from the water. It happens every year. Yeah. And they're like consoling us with this. Like this is normal. Like this is what happens, yeah. man. It like you're new here. Time like this is yeah, just yeah. this is what happens. Like five other kids already died this year. Wow. And so, like, we're sitting there now on this like wooden bench, you know, head swimming. And I, I turned to Grace and like, I said that you know the hell if this is gonna happen anymore. And that the only thing I knew to do, mm-hmm. you know, was we we have to fix and stop this. So immediately like dealing with pain what do guys do you know try to fix something yeah. i thought we can just drill a well so the 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 what he had was bacterial meningitis happens every year and what happens is the one well that still works at the in the village that isn't dried up in the dry season is at their school so all the kids come to this well and they have these little like bags made out of inner tubes and wire that they let down with ropes they lay those down, the kids pick them up, they put them to their mouths, they drink out of them. The rope falls on the ground in the mud and the chicken yeah. you know, feces and all that. They throw it back down in the well and they fill it up. And there's only about four or five inches of water that's standing in the bottom of this thing. Sure. So you can just imagine how much like muck and germ and like viral load builds up yeah. um, with this small amount of water and these 700 people using this one you know, water source all at one time. And so if you're weak, young elderly have malaria or any other sort of like pre-existing condition mm-hmm. does this sound familiar uh yeah uh, yeah uh, heard that enough last, heard that enough lately um, uh, you're you know you you're really vulnerable to yeah. being killed by it so um olivier had, had died from bacterial meningitis um you know which was just sort of a common thing there um so we, my father had driven a well in our backyard in Alabama and put a hand pump on it when I was a kid. Yeah. Kid you not. Like, <laughs> we have this red hand pump, and you had to pour water in the top of it and get it primed, and you yeah. would pump water out of it, sort of like the old, you know, ones you'd see here in Oklahoma in museums. And uh, we had so many hurricanes, and because we were Route 1, Lot 1, Evans Road, whenever the wind blew, the power would be out it would be out for us forever. Yeah. And so we couldn't flush toilets or take baths. And so we had this hand pump that would pump out you know, red rusty water that we could flush toilets with and stuff when the hurricanes hit. And dad had driven it in with a sledgehammer in this point. So I was like, dad, you know, how do we, you know, how do we drill well? He sent pictures of that. Uh, there was another missionary in town who had been like trying to build stuff locally too. So me and this, this guy get together, find a local welder and start building the drill kit for $70 to drill a well yeah. in Africa. So we use spring steel off cars. So we go to the junkyard, get spring steel, make these steel points with this hardened spring steel uh, off the springs of a truck. Yeah. Um, galvanized pipe parts, cast pulleys out of aluminum, get like braided rope made, uh, throw up logs, make a derrick. Okay. Uh, so it's like a goalpost type thing with these logs, that, with trees that we cut down that have Ys in the end of them. Um, and we attach a rope over the pulley to the pipe. Twelve guys are pulling two sticks like we're rowing boats, yeah, pulling this rope up and, and down. down. Yeah. 
and then we get a little water in the hole to make some mud and when the the pipe goes down this like valve we made would open and when you'd lift up the valve would close the mud would rise and would drop again the mud would spray out the top and so there you were standing there with your hand hand valving mud as the crew lifted up and down on this pipe and we drilled a 90 foot well uh in lasa joe in 10 days for 75 dollars wow so we case it we make a hand pump out of tire sidewalls flip-flop rebar and half inch pipe yeah and we're pumping water uh from a protected aquifer that we've backfilled and now we've got you know hundred dollars invested in this and a hundred dollars is what it would have taken to save Livy's life when you look like like i spent 120 dollars on a new car battery yesterday (laughs) i know right like it's nothing. It's nothing. Like, the, the lesson is like, if we, I think that the problems that exist in the world, God has already equipped the solutions for mm-hmm. those things around us. Yeah. A village of 700 people can afford to drill their own well. Mm-hmm. They've just been told their whole life that they can't drill their own well, that there's not a means to drill their mm-hmm. own well, that uh, you have to wait for someone else to come and do it for you. And... Um, I just don't believe that's yeah. true. Um, and we drilled seven wells there that year. It's in that town? In that one village. Okay. Yeah. And what I, I didn't want anyone to wait. And I wanted, I knew these things were going to break. Yeah. Because we, you know, we made them out of tire side walls, flip flops yeah. and, and yeah. rebar. And we wanted there to be, when each one broke, we wanted to have time to fix them so that people didn't have to go back and drink sure. the dirty water. One of the things about unsafe water is if you drink one glass of unsafe water, it undoes all the glasses of safe water that you've consumed. Just one. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if it's got shigilla, salmonella, E. coli, yeah. like... Yeah, if, it's still full of crap. It's just full yeah. of crap. And yeah. once it gets in your body, it's going to multiply and it undo all the good. Because safe yeah. water doesn't actually do good. It just doesn't do harm. It just prevents. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you drink one bad cup of water, you know, it destroys everything else that's happened. So we, we're... I have been an organization. It's not one of these groups. It's like a well for 2,000 people. Yeah. 2,000 people standing at something that pumps three and a half gallons a minute is not yeah. the sort of life that you want people to have. Especially for the most, some of these people are walking a long way to They get already have food. so much stuff to do. Yeah. You know, you're like manually grinding your own food and working in fields and yeah. walking everywhere without cars. You don't want to have a three hour line for your, you know, bucket of water. Yeah. Um, so we did that seven seven wells in this one village, um, and like to do a real quality borehole, a hundred dollars isn't. Well, of course, but like that's what got it started. But that's what we got started yeah. with, and it was that idea of like we don't need the quarter million dollar drilling rig. Yeah. In uh, the team of Canadian engineers. And a helicopter, yeah. to, fly <laughs> and a helicopter to come down, yeah, 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 to come down and do this. Like we could actually do this with you know local people. Uh, and there's this huge labor force that want to learn new skills yeah. that are curious that are uh, you know highly um, uh, not ingenious but have a lot of ingenuity you know it's like MacGyver yeah whenever you grow up without resources you learn to do a lot with the resources you have yeah and that was my childhood too and so we didn't I didn't even have a cordless drill so we would heat up nails and fire and then punch holes in anything plastic or PVC with hot nails and a pair of pliers. Yeah. Um, and like I said, cast with aluminum and clay molds. Uh, uh, I remember the first Water 4 trip that they came, I just, they were like, what do you need? What do you want? And I was like, man, if I could have a nine volt cordless drill, like, <laughs> it 
would save me so much time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, sure, you know? Yeah. Uh, just it, that? Just yeah. that, you know? Uh, but it's that, like, low-resource thinking makes, like, breeds creativity and ingenuity yeah. in, in the right people. Um, so we, we just saw it that way. So after that first year, I was Googling, like, how to drill manual wells. Mm-hmm. Um with with hand tools because what we were doing was pretty brutal sometimes these pipes would shear off oh yeah like 100 feet down and you'd lose 10 days of work the other thing it required was a lot of water because you were having to keep this mud solution up so people were carrying us all this water to drill wells for them and there was this one school in lasa cho where where it all started and the kids already had a hard time coming to school because you had to have at least a liter of water to come to school so that you wouldn't get dehydrated and distracted. Yeah. Imagine all you need is a liter and the kids many yeah. days could not even get a liter of water to come to school so they'd be turned away by the teachers to go home until they could get a liter of water to bring back wow. so they could drink it. So those kids are bringing me three or four gallons each so that I can yeah. drill a well and there's all these from like bowls like cereal bowls to six gallon basins all over the well site when I get there at six in the morning so these kids have walked miles and miles and miles for three and four a.m. to wow. find a water source filled up all these basins and so the little five-year-olds are bringing me cereal bowls of water that they've carried back to these big four and five yeah. gallon basins so that we can get a well in place and talk about motivation oh yeah i mean pressure (laughs) (laughs) but yeah this has got to work this has got to work um and so we just knew we knew there had to be a better way than what Mm. we were doing it um and so water forward just launched a website you know like it was this basic like white and blue website and they had these three different links and i clicked all of them i was like hey i'm this guy in togo yeah we're trying to drill wells and got this great local teams that we've started and um i got an email back from like all three of them and it was like the board chair uh the like inventor who had invented the drill kit and then the first executive director and they were all like yeah man we are here what do you need yeah tell us what you're doing and three months from that first email i had uh, one of water force auger based drill kits and five of their pumps in my hands they had actually flown over and said man we'll we'll spend four or five days with you and yeah. let's drill well together and uh, and we'll leave the equipment for you to, to use behind. And that was sort of like the first match yeah. made in history. Uh, Water 4 had this Apollo mentality of like, what do we have laying around us? What can we build with local materials? Mm-hmm. The tools are all built out of standard pipes and C-channels, iron and square tubing. Um, I got their equipment and the next 12 months we did 37 wells instead of seven. And then the next 12 months we did 100. Okay. So, I mean, like in terms of like scale, yeah. capacity, using their equipment, it was, you know, it, it still is. We still use it. It's slick. It's modular. It folds down. Instead of like 20 different tools, there each one has like a different tip, like a screwdriver. It has like the multi-tip yeah. screwdriver sets. Yeah. All the equipment was built with that type of mentality where you could just change plug the it in, plug ends. In, yeah, plug yeah. In, yeah, clip on, clip yeah. off the toolkits and... Um, tripod that folded down and sailboat winches that could you could release fast with and like all this sort of slick thinking with it but we could fix it all with plow shears you know plow disc and you know still spring steel and yeah. keep everything working with local materials and um, I came back my first trip and Dick and Terry Greenlayer the founders of Water 4 and I told Dick man we drilled 100 wells this year it's been greatest thing ever and, and Dick leans across the table and says how many people are in Togo I was like, around 7 million. 
He said, how long is it going to take you to get 7 million people safe water at 100 bottles a year? Yeah. And that was sort of my first, <laughs> like, real introduction to water for, right. is I was looking for the accolades and the pat yeah. on the back. He's and like, uh, nice job, rookie. Yeah, no, yeah. No, he was like, you know, like, <laughs> congratulations. Yeah. How are you going to do this at scale? Yeah. And, uh, and that's, you know, what I've loved in the last decade is, mm-hmm. you know, Dick and Terry, yes, it's about each individual life that's saved. It's, you know, about the fact that 5,000 kids, you know, die from dirty water. Yeah. You know, we talk about the coronavirus, the, like, average death rate since it started has been a little less than 5,000 people. That's been going on every day with the water crisis, yeah. you know, for, for, since the start of time probably. But at least since mm-hmm. the 80s and 90s, we've been aware that 5,000 people are dying from this, you know, every single day. And... Um, when you have a problem that large, you've got yeah. to expand your way of thinking about you know, the solutions. And um, we uh, we started finding really fast that as we got to 150, 200 wells, they were breaking. Yeah, we had to go back and fix them. We needed this <clears throat> like post installation solution put in place. And right about then, I've I've had like. Uh, every waterborne illness known to Oregon Trail uh, that, that could ever be conceived. Yeah. Uh, I've had malaria, you know, a dozen times, 105 fevers, convulsions, been forced to sit in bathtubs of ice all day from, from fevers. And um, at this point, my body's a wreck. I'm like 300 pounds, just swollen, hurting all the time, um, and, uh, and constantly sick. I wake up, we're gonna f- install a hand pump at another school, and I can't straighten my fingers. My fingers look like like an 80-year-old man with arthritis. Yeah. And uh, knuckles are really swollen, eyes really red. So I call the guys, I'm like, all right, I'm gonna come out, but I may not be able to stay all day, there's something wrong with me. And I remember grabbing that pump, and the pumps are like three-inch uh, couplings on them, and I'm, I'm trying to hold that pump, and I cannot squeeze my hands around the three-inch pump. And so three inches is like your Nalgene bottle, you know? I, yeah, I yeah. couldn't even hold and squeeze that. And that's when I knew something was wrong, yeah. you know? Cause at first I thought maybe I just banged my hand with something hard yesterday or maybe, you know, like I just really bruised my knuckles not paying attention to what I was doing because we're busting rock, right. you know, and using sledgehammers and stuff. And um, that night uh, I lose vision in my left eye and I can't straighten my knees and can't put weight on my toes because there's so much inflammation within them. It looks like I've got sprains, like massive instant sprains in my knees and feet. Um, by the morning, I was in excruciating, like horrific pain, I'd lost yeah. sight. And my wife uh, doesn't know how to drive our five-speed truck. Because it's a stick. Because it's a stick, you yeah. know? And so we're like, well, <laughs> hey, you know, I've got this Australian buddy, and yeah. I'm like, hey, Andrew, do you mind taking me to the hospital? Uh, which is seven and a half hours away. There's yeah. this American doctor at this one hospital, and we thought, let's try to get down to there. And, and <laughs> it's like going to Houston for, for a Yeah, hospital, it's like going to Houston right? for, yeah, it's, yeah, that's your trip. But also, like, not on a highway. But not on a highway. Right. And then um, he shows up at like five at night, yeah. and, he's, and then he sees me, and it's like, oh, Oh. This is bad. Why didn't you say yeah, why something? Why didn't you say so? Yeah. You know, because I'm a guy from Alabama. Of course. So yeah. we have to drive down at night, and like people block the roads with trees and steal your cars, and yeah. so we're literally driving through these, you know, jungle roads down in this hospital at, at threat of being, yeah. you know, taken over and get to the hospital. 
put me in a wheelchair at this point. I can't stand and walk on my own. Roll me up to this American doctor who's, you know, waking up in the middle of the night, looks at me and says, we don't want to treat you here. Yeah. Because now you've got an American who's on the edge of catastrophe in their hospital. And he said, we just need to get you out of here. And I said, I don't have evacuation insurance. I need you to fix me yeah. and take care of me here. So Dr. Briggs is this guy's name. He's this awesome like uh, uh, doctor from Michigan. Mm-hmm. And he says, does anyone in your family have ankylosing spondylitis, which is this type of arthritis that yeah. is genetic, passed on? And I said, yeah. He said, well, based on what condition you're in and how fast it's set and this like gnarly rash thing that got on my knee, he said, you have got some serious arthritis reaction happening in your body. We're going to try to take care of you. My uh, pulse is erratic. I was bleeding internally. My optical muscles had cut off blood flow to my eyes, so I had lost blood flow and circulation in my eyes. How old are you at this point? I'm, um, so this happened in 2011, so I'm... So very 20, recent. Yeah, like, yeah 28. Yeah. Uh, wow. Um, uh, they have to put tubes in my knees because they're afraid... Um, the muscles are tearing in my joints because they're... In, the inflammation has happened so fast and yeah. it's so extreme. They pack me with bags of ice. Uh, they find out I have cerebral malaria. They do five malarial treatments to try to get that out. I have Shigilla, E. coli, Salmonella while I'm there yeah. all at the same time in the hospital. Um, and uh, the pain levels are so high that I go into shock when I'm not on Demerol and morphine. Mm-hmm. And so they give me Demerol, they give me morphine, and then that time between if you ever had to survive on pain meds that time between i'm just like hyperventilating for an hour waiting for the nurse to come back in and give me that shot of demerol again because the joint pain and all my major connection connective tissue areas is so high there's 30 drugs a day that i'm taking my wife has it all laid out on a coffee table and i'm just cycling through all these different inflammatory meds 160 milligrams of prednisone which if you've ever had to take prednisone, uh-huh, it's like yeah. 16 times the maximum dosage you'd ever give somebody. Yeah. Um, and so I'm there in a bed in Africa, and the doctor's telling my wife, you need to be prepared for him not to make it out of here. You need to, what plans do you have? Do you guys have a will? You know, these sort of things. And Having I'm, serious conversations. Serious conversations with yeah. my wife while I'm there. and I'm like out but still there but listen, so you know listen, what's listen happening. to these things yeah and you know it's it's like seriously touching like 28 29 20 years, years old, old looking at losing my life in africa i'm there a month yeah. in this hospital uh, and at the end of a month i have these like beautiful encounters with god again or like i hear him like promise that i will recover that i will be healed um there's this like huge and like the pain was like removed from my knee Mm -hmm. in this one big encounter where I like literally heard God say father son and spirit pull this pain out of my body and I'm you can even hear me saying it I'm cynical about everything right I'm I'm the most like scientific redneck guy ever and there's this like powerful encounters that I'm having both from the time I'm 17 you know up to now um, the kind of encounters that if somebody else told you this, you'd be like, yeah, totally. whatever. But it's, because you've had it yourself, yeah. you're like, I, I'm like, this is. And from, every from time a hardship, experience. I'm like, yes, I know you sound crazy to yourself even, but yeah. you know, this happened, Matt. And, yeah. and it, it was one of those moments where I almost felt like 
um, it was like being saved again through the pain. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so I was having to cling to God for life and for breath, and uh, I had this huge peace. And the, the other thing that um, this moment of awareness, I hear all these people howling in pain outside of my room. And so it's a screen door, no air conditioning, vinyl mattress, it's all cracked, cutting you in the back, the camp mattress thing. Yeah. Same mason jar IV tubes, but I'm hearing these people wail and suffer, and I'm seeing these people sit outside on the sidewalk who don't have you know, the, the eight by five room that I'm yeah. in. And, um, it's gone. Uh, it's no big deal. And just realize how incredibly lucky I am to have something to fall back on. Yeah. Uh, how incredibly lucky I am to have, you know, uh, enough resources to buy the medicine that I need. Yeah. And uh, I suddenly realized in a world of billions of people that I was not on the top of the priority list in the universe. And I just needed to be very patient mm-hmm. about God's timing for healing and recovery. Um, yeah. So at the end of that month, my pain levels suddenly sort of like drop manageable where I can use a walker and stand up. And the doctor says, you need to get on an airplane and you need to get to America like now. Yeah. Um, so, uh, water four calls and says, Hey man, here you're in a tough spot. Is there anything we can do? And I said, you could get me back to America. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be really good. Like right now. Uh, So they do. So executive director, like, you know, it says, we'll book you, you know, British air flight, yeah. uh, get you a bulkhead seat and get you home. And so Will chaired me to the hospital, got me back to America. We get back here and realize that the, I have no insurance, no house, no car, no savings, sold everything we own to move to Africa. Yeah. And I'm 27. Why would I need insurance? Right. Uh, and nobody will see me. Um, we go to like the free healthcare clinics, you know, and, and they're just totally like, we have a ch- like a childhood rheumatologist that can see you in 60 days. Uh, I've got a suitcase full of Demerol <laughs> that's at, like hospital in Togo's giving me, uh, and I'm thinking how much you know Tylenol fours and Demerol do I have left to like get to this point? Yeah. Terrible pain still. And, um, uh, this uh, rheumatologist in Mobile, Dr. Myers, uh, we call him. He says I'll see you, but it's going to be five thousand dollars to do the first test. Yeah. Um, we have a credit card. I say, we've got $5,000 credit card limit. Yeah. We'd sign us up. Like, I'm dying. I can't do this. Yeah. I can't mentally continue to be in this amount of pain. Um, and so we show up to the doctor, and my wife, who's like, you know, buck 10, a blonde, is pushing me now, like yeah. a 310 pound sea monster in a wheelchair. Um, you know, just all curled up, can't extend my fingers can't see right. uh, can't stand and he when he sees my wife pushing me he opens a door to talk to the nurse right as we're walking in this guy has compassion on our situation yeah. does the test gives me the sheet at the end of it and it says no charge at the top of it for 16 weeks this guy saw us That's so good. tested us gave me the medicine for free yeah um very quietly of about course. it all yeah um never asked for anything and at the uh, 16 weeks he looked at me and said matt you're going to mentally break if you continue to fight this you are going to be disabled you're going to be confined to a bed you're Mm -hmm. not going to be able to work anymore you need to face that that's yeah that's not something i can still compute much less compute then yeah uh i tell him like i can't 
I can't, if I give up, I'll, right. I'll give up, Yeah. you know, like I can't do this. He says, there's one other thing we could try, but it's 3,200 bucks a month. And I only have two samples and I can't give it to you yeah. after that. So it's this drug called Humira. He pulls them out of a cooler. I've been taking these neon yellow cancer drugs up till then to try to suppress my immune system. A drug called methyltrexate. It's a little high dose of it mm-hmm. that they were giving me to try to get my immune system to rattle down. Uh, turns out I have 17 autoimmune disorders. Yeah. And uh, the illnesses in Africa, the malaria, the waterborne illness, sort of like broke the dam on all these latent autoimmune things that were there. Um, and they all came out at once because there was such a horrific mm-hmm. immune system load that's there. So they're trying to suppress all these immune issues now with these immunosuppressant drugs. Gives me the Humira. Uh, says, you know, warm it up in your hands when you get home. Give yourself a shot. I'll see you next week. See how you're going. That next morning, for the first time in nearly six months, I sat up in bed on my own and had my feet on the floor on my own. How did that feel? I, I like, woke my you wife think up. You're I think yeah, absolutely. Think I'm drinking. I mean, yeah. I can't even go to the bathroom on my own. At, yeah. You know, I've told this. So I'm like sitting up in bed. I'm like shaking my wife. You know, we're in another of the 14 garage basement homes that we'd stayed in up till yeah. then. And, um, I said, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm sitting up on my own. And she, how did you do that? You know, and, yeah. and are you okay? And did you fall over? And she's not slept in six months. You right. know, and um, that day I went from wheelchair to walker. By the third day, I remember sliding into the booth at like an Applebee's just using a cane. Yeah. And so I had like, and by the fourth day, I'm just walking just with a cane sort of as, as backup. Yeah. Muscles of atrophy, super weak, but I can extend my joints. I can hold a glass of tea in my hand. You know, I can hold a fork yeah. and put food, you know, in my mouth by myself. And uh, this uh, Humira anti-inflammatory drug shut down this immune response to a level that I could start to functioning. So we go back to the doctor and he's like Like sprinting in the door. Yeah. (laughs) Like, like walking in the door with this, this cane. And he says, you, you know, maybe you're going to make it after all Matt. Yeah. So, uh, from there it was, I was back on the track. So that was in November 11th that I get that shot. January 20th, I'm back on an airplane headed to Africa. Yeah. Just like, right, I'm ready to go. Still on, you know, 30 drugs. They have to taper me off of this stuff for six months. We get back to Africa. They drilled 30-something wells while I was gone. Yeah. Just um, them on their own. Like just them the on their own. Yeah. The teams that I'd started. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, I came back. They wanted to give me the, like, project back to manage. And I said, guys, you have done. Yeah everything that I ever dreamed would happen from this. They planted eight churches on their own without my help at all. They drilled, you know, 30, 35 wells. And I just said, I'll be here and I'll shadow you guys for 18 months. But after that, yeah, it's going to hurt you for me to stay and we're going to move on. So Water Forward hired me there uh, while I was sick before I got the medicine. They hired me so that I could hopefully have health insurance. The board chair says, you know, you think God's going to heal you, don't you? Uh, I said, yeah, I know he will. And he said, well, when do you want to start? We'll get you some insurance and hopefully, you know, you can get going. So I was their guy. I did like, you know, nailed my ear to the door. I was, you know, water for property at that point. Yeah. And uh, that meant that $3,000 drug was now covered by insurance. And so I was able to continue after that month sample, get my own, continue taking it. Um, 
and stuff at Water Forest, you know, grown and flourished yeah, and, yeah. and scaled from there. Um, so 2013, you go back. Go back in And 13. then grow it till probably since when I saw you would have yeah. been like... So actually, so 2012, we moved back, and then they asked me to do what we were doing in Togo around the world. Got you. And so uh, we moved um, back from Africa to the U.S. in 2013. Mm-hmm. We live in a log cabin in Yukon uh, at Saad by Sherry. Um, and, uh, and then buy a house in South Guthrie where we are yeah. today. So that's that's been like the big big story. Have you uh, written a book yet? Haven't written a book yet. Uh, that has to be on the on on the. We no one has time for this, but uh, you know, at some point, you know, the other thing that's happened is I you know I ran a half marathon in twenty twenty thirteen. Um, I tapered off the drugs and I took a motorcycle trip across America, which I meant to just be a motorcycle trip. I ended up hiking a half dome hiking to a bristle cone in um, Great Basin and then yeah. walked out uh, on Plateau Point in Grand Canyon out and back at 307 pounds on all these drugs, told that I shouldn't walk more than the distance of a Walmart sure. and started running up and down a quarter mile driveway at Saw by Sherry and that was as far as I could run. Yeah. Um, from July to the Route 66 marathon, I ran at my first half marathon and then have been pushing and fighting these inflammatory conditions for the last seven years to the point where last year, you know, I ran um, across the Grand Canyon and back twice, which is 50 miles. uh, All rim to rim to rim. I did my first triathlon, two marathons, and then an Alpine ultra marathon, uh, you know, up above the tree line, the whole way. It was a 28 miler. And um, this year had to do my own self-supported, you know, Ironman 70.3, a half distance Ironman. Which I saw you had your, your daughter was out there right at the checkpoint. Your yeah. wife's out there helping you out. And yeah, so. my daughter showed up with signs yeah. and, and uh, potatoes. Cool. And I've lost you know 120 pounds. And uh, since then, we had two two girls. The cancer drugs I was on would not allow us to have children. Sure. We'd been trying to have kids for 10 years and hadn't been able to. And um, part of the miracles was us having kids and me having this you know new hope of life. And yeah. this year, I'm hoping to run Mount Hood twice. So it's an 80-mile double loop 20,000 feet of elevation and to go from being in a wheelchair and told that it would never work out right uh to to have being a kid that was told you know he was too bad too rough to be a part of the school system and there's been a lot of these moments in my life where it wasn't supposed to work out uh, yeah but to have had this divine mercy grace extended to me where it has worked out uh and worked out more than i could have imagined it's been really really beautiful so water four we just finished our six thousandth water project we've served close to 1.6 million people so i was proud of 100 wells we've done six thousand um we're about to finish our first like entire county where no one in an entire county of 100,000 people every home school and clinic has access to safe water there's nowhere you can go in the county and not have access to safe water. That's so, good. so not just your village, but sure. anywhere you go. Uh, we're trying to do that in 20 other uh, districts along with our other work in the next 10 years. Yeah. Uh, and our goal is to serve 7 million people by 2030 through what we're doing. Yeah. So just huge, huge opportunities. Um, and all of it comes back to water. You yeah. know, and, and it comes back for me. Um, where do you think I got shit, Gila, Salmonella, and E. coli? 
the water that I was mm-hmm. drinking in communities, where did Olivier die from the water in those communities? Um, and like, even though it stinks to be sick, it's a really huge daily reminder that every there, there's 2 billion people that don't have safe water yeah. in the world, 2 billion yeah. people. And so like, um, I am one of two point, you know, yeah. one billion people that face the repercussions of dirty water, unsafe water every day in their lives. And we get to do something about it at Water 4. And I get to be a part of a job that I couldn't imagine being yeah. more passionate about every day. Yeah, nobody's going to question your motivation after yeah. listening to this. Yeah, yeah. Some, some personal connections yeah. to it. That's, I, you know, I want to get the Water 4 logo tattoo, but oh, yeah. uh, maybe maybe going too far yeah it's it's great we uh you know one of the things i i wanted to share too is like last year we had our like walk for water Uh this is this event that water four has and i hope some of you guys that are listening would consider coming out on september 19th and at scissor tail park we actually have people carry an empty bucket of water almost a mile and a half like 1.3 miles and then carry a full bucket of water like a gallon, like a, it's a five gallon bucket. Five gallon, like, like your Lowe's bucket. So you can put as much water in as you want. Yeah. People in Africa are carrying 40 pounds. Yeah. So it's heavy when it's full. So like last year, most people carried around two gallons in it. Um, but to like experience hauling that water, you know, even just a mile and a half, which the average distance is three miles is a really tangible experience that you and your family get to, to go do together and we have uh, stories lined up at each loop you do. It's like, it talks about the global crisis, the country crisis, the personal crisis, yeah. and then the solutions around it. And, you know, I don't want everyone to go to Africa and get sick like I did so that they can connect don't with listen it. To the <laughs> <laughs> don't, but don't listen to your granddad. <laughs> our event's really, yeah, uh, a good way to come out and connect with, you yeah. know, this walk that everyone's doing every day around the world to get water. And unfortunately, most of those people are walking that distance for water that's making them sick. Yeah. Because there's no other option. Well, and the fact of walking, carrying that water and making all of it still and keeping the bucket till the end. Keeping it. That's hard enough. Yeah. And you're burning calories that you're not even getting to to use because you have diarrheal disease. So even the little bit of food you're eating is not being absorbed in your body because you have diarrheal disease from the dirty water that you're consuming. So this like cycle, imagine every day waking up, roosters crowing. You know, sun's about to rise, and thinking uh-huh. I have to walk three miles, carry forty gallons, of, forty pounds of water back, yeah. and do that for my family of seven, uh, yeah. and just a constant drain. And then imagine having a tap fifty meters outside your house that has safe, yeah. treated water in it, where you just spin a top and fill up your bucket and carry it back. Like it's incomprehensible the weight of. Mm-hmm of life that gets lifted with the work that we do. And so we want people to come out hear about that and be a part of it. And, you know, we're Oklahoma city based, Oklahoma city rooted and, you know, are working in around the world. And most people don't know that we're here on 10th and Villa, you know, next to the, you know, subwoofer shop, rim shop, you know, on, uh, and, and fairgrounds and we're creating technology and, you know, working with 500 African entrepreneurs that, we've been able to launch and scale into these huge water businesses uh, around the continent. It's it's just amazing. And like, it's, I'm sure it is very overwhelming at times. Yeah. Um, but 
like you said that you you know you, you're in this you've been doing this and now you're in charge of this and seeing how it works yeah. and you know because you have this upbringing of you know growing up in Alabama and just figuring things out you know all these little things in life that's happened to you that put you to where you are now everything is just adding your experience yeah. and you can just you know going from like being able to relate to people when you go on a mission trip when you're in college or high school whatever it is because you're just good with your hands and they understand yeah. grafting and hard work yeah you know and now to like building wells and it's to, to like have been able to be a well driller which yeah. is what i was to being able to drive the organization you know and, and grow us to yeah. have this multi-million person impact is just really great I, you know when the board asked me to be a ceo i said i feel like the guy that was asked to go cut down a tree and then they had to, to like split the tree into lumber to build a boat to like get it out in the water and then say and can you captain it you yeah. know and that's been the sort of beauty for me is i've been able to be a part of this ground up transformation in water four and then be able to lead all these amazing people yeah. and lead from their vision and their relationships with me it's been yeah been incredible and everything like you can kind of trace back to like getting kicked out of school and getting your, your granddad passing and getting this inheritance and yeah. going just some timing divine timing and you go to private school and you haven't experienced this somebody actually cares about you yep right like some people like schooling has such an impact yeah on everybody uh and now you've begun turned in turned out to become like this you know, the CEO of this huge water company that's impacting millions around the world. It doesn't take much. When people are in hard environments, it doesn't take a whole lot of good yeah. to make a huge impact on them. And I hope everybody realizes that, especially right now when we're all anxious and having a hard day, like yeah. smiling with your eyes while you're wearing your mask in Walmart. Uh, and especially, you know, putting your arm around a young kid and mm. taking interest in their lives it can, can put them on a trajectory like yeah. mine today. So the runs, the walk is in the 19th of September. 19th of September, Scissor Tail Park. Yeah. So we're doing, we like, we don't know what's going to happen. Sure. So it's a huge park. Yeah. It's outdoor. We're going to yeah. be providing masks and hand washing. And what we hope is that we have, you know, anywhere up to a thousand people there. Yeah. But we'll be able to space a park because Scissor Tail is huge. And then walk, collect water, carry mm -hmm. the bucket, have the story. If the COVID-19 situation doesn't work out and we're not able to gather, and even if it if it does, we have a walk where you are component that's yeah. like a digital package. So sure. it's like the the virtual type walk where you can go with your family, your subdivision, mm -hmm. or get together with your neighbors and do it, and still learn and look at the picture slides on your phone and yeah. do the walk. And we can provide the buckets for you and all the information. Mm -hmm. um, but it's you know it's Water Ford's way of like trying to connect people here with what yeah. the rest of the world's doing. And right now. We're tired of feeling stuck at home and feeling like we're trapped, and we think it's going to be a really good thing for people to be able to get out, and practically do, and you yeah. know, change the sort of narrative and and uh, bring some hope because we are doing something about it, mm -hmm. uh, and we are ending it. Yeah, and so it's uh, websites on on the nice yeah. uh, screen behind you. Yeah. So waterfall.org org uh, forward slash walk for that, and then obviously waterfall with the number four. Uh, dot org and then obviously on water for and all social media as well i assume thanks yeah and everything there yep. as well so, instagram facebook yeah. linkedin and um yeah we'd love it if everyone would you know come out and walk check out the website and register and yeah. uh, and be a part of that with us awesome thanks. thanks so much for your time guys thanks for listening we'll catch you next episode cheers 
This podcast was presented by the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, who've been telling Oklahoma's story through its people since 1927. Follow them online at OklahomaHOF.com and definitely on Instagram at OklahomaHOF. Catch you next episode. Cheers. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram.